Over the past few weeks, our lives have quickly changed in profound ways. We continue to be committed to care for our patients, provide education for our trainees, and support our family and friends. This special podcast series during the COVID-19 pandemic will bring you perspectives from our otolaryngology community on what is going on in real time. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. This is episode two in the Otomentor Pandemic Special Series. This was recorded on April 3rd, 2020 with Dr. Craig Quattlebaum, an otolaryngologist at Mercy Health in Oklahoma City. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to know, Craig, how is the COVID-19 pandemic affecting you on a day-to-day basis right now? Yeah, pretty significantly. I think like everyone else, we've tried to do our best to protect patients, protect our staff, and protect our resources. I think those are the three main things that everyone's trying to base their decisions off of. So just on a day-to-day basis, I'm not doing any elective surgeries, and the majority of my practice is elective surgery. So I did a neck dissection parotid for metastatic squame on Monday. But other than that, I don't have any surgery scheduled for the foreseeable future. I think technically we're pushed back um, at least until June at this point. And then the same is true of my clinic. I am not seeing anything but urgent issues in clinic. And so I'm basically just going through my referral queue as well as all my already scheduled patients to triage them myself to see what I can do in clinic, what I could do through some sort of a telemedicine type visit versus a phone call, just doing our best to keep people out of our clinic where they could potentially be exposed. But the other side of that coin is keeping them out of the urgent cares and the ERs so that those places can most effectively triage things as well. So it's trying to strike that balance between making sure we got folks taken care of and also protecting them from the pandemic, obviously. Yeah. So you have been able to do some telehealth? Yeah, this is one of the benefits. You know, I work for a hospital system who has telehealth incorporated into some of what it does. It's never touched my world before, but they had some platforms set up that had been pre-tested by other specialties. And so we use Epic at Mercy. And so there is a platform within uh, Epic that's actually embedded into it that we can use video visits. Do you guys have that at Colorado? Yes, we do. We're doing that. Okay. And then we also done some, you know, with the relaxed HIPAA regulations along some of these e-visit things, we've used a platform called Jitsi, which is kind of like the Zoom that we're using right now, just to create a meeting room with a specific password that that patient can meet you in, sort of a, a virtual exam room. But obviously, as a surgeon, I think we have uniquely difficult time <laughs> assessing some of these things. And so it really is kind of an art, I think, of trying to find out what is most appropriate to be seen in clinic and what's most appropriate to be done over some sort of a telemedicine visit. But I currently I'm essentially all telemedicine except for one day of the week in which I'm seeing some people in person, but that usually translates to four or five people at the very most, usually less than that. That may be a potential new cancer diagnosis or a more recent cancer follow-up or something like that, or maybe an acute infection that needs to be addressed. Other than that, we're trying to do everything over video visit or worst case scenario, rescheduling them out into the summer. Yeah. So what worries you the most about this pandemic? I think what worries me the most is if we don't have a firm endpoint, say a vaccine, say a certain percentage of the population recovered from it, that I just don't know what the endpoint is. (laughs) At what point and by what measures do you start reintroducing things? I mean, we know, sounds like from some of our colleagues 
internationally that some of what we do is some of the more dangerous things that can be done from a concept of aerosolizing uh, viral particles, et cetera. So, you know, let's say we reach a point where we can start seeing patients again in June. Do we immediately go back to performing nasal endoscopies at that time? You know, or is that something that we stagger even later? I guess not just when do we do it, but my biggest concern is how do we know when to do it? <laughs> What's our barometer? What's the measure? You know, and, and I think that's going to be hard. I have some concerns that this becomes something that drags out for a while. And yes, we hashtag flatten the curve, but then the curve extends for the foreseeable future or even becomes sort of an endemic problem. And so I don't know and uncertainty is hard for all of us, right? Like this is why we're surgeons as we like to say, here's the problem. Let me fix it. And this just feels so much out of our control. I think that's a difficult emotion to process. Yeah, absolutely. So in Oklahoma, it's predicted that the surge will probably start next week in earnest right. and then reach a peak in two weeks after that. Do you foresee changes in your practice? Like, do you think you're going to be called to reassignment in another capacity during that time? What do you think is going to happen with that? Good question. I don't know. I, I, we, asking me is probably good as asking the magic eight ball, you know, like I, <laughs> I definitely think that there's the possibility of that. We're sort of preparing for those possibilities. I currently am scheduling clinic as if I'm going to be doing e-visits or, you know, video visits for three or four days a week, um, leaving some operative time in case something emergent or urgent pops up. But I've been pretty proud of my hospital system, impressed with them. Uh, they've been very forethinking, I think, on a lot of these things. And so there have been discussions about where I would go. I could see myself helping potentially in the emergency room or the ICU, I think are the places that an ENT's skills are probably best used. We've been discussing how to handle tracheostomies during these times, whether percutaneous or open. These discussions have been had, and then it's all it's feeling of a calm before the storm as we're all waiting to see which of these provisions that we've laid out are we going to have to enact and, and hoping for the best, but you just don't know. So yeah, I, I think the short answer to your question is I think there's a real possibility of some of us being deployed in other areas, and I think we just have to be willing to you know, help in the best way that we can. But I'm just planning to move forward as we are for now, just being ready to be flexible if need be. And then since you're employed with the hospital, tell me about the financial situation with your practice. I mean, are there talks about that so far? Great question. There are talks. I think a lot of the energy right now is focused on let's get the logistics of the pandemic under control and mop this up later. But that certainly could come back to bite either me or the hospital or both. The way that my compensation is structured, it's RBU-based, but it's by tiers of production level. So I'm completely, these are incorrect numbers, but I'm just throwing them out. You make a certain amount of dollars if you produce 1,000 RBUs, and you make a certain amount of dollars if you cross over to 2,000 RBUs. And at some point, it crosses over to a threshold that is just dollar per RBU-based at the very top end. And so it's created, your salary on a monthly basis is created on a 12-month look back. So there's a sort of an averaging system that's built in, which I remember initially not loving because I felt like, oh, you know, if I take a vacation, I'll feel it for a year or whatever. And now I'm looking at it and thinking, boy, this is lovely for this kind of a thing, <laughs> you know, because in a worst case scenario, let's say all my production just gets swallowed up and my productivity drops off as if like it actually is happening. And there's no protection provided by the hospital system or by any sort of subsidy. Even in that case, my compensation model spreads out that loss over a year, which you could look at it on the downside of, well, you carry that with you for a year. But I look at it in a much positive way of, 
I don't go three months without a paycheck or however long it may be. So some of that burden, I think, gets lifted in that sense. There's some discussion that there are protections for our production value that we get some sort of a, you know, a subsidy based on our average production during this time. But I frankly don't see how a system could support that sort of a thing unless there's just things that I uh, don't understand how they'd make that happen. Maybe that's something you can do over a short period of time, but I can't imagine stretching that out over and being able to give me my average work RVU production if I'm not bringing those things in for three months. So I think there's a lot of question marks about that right now. The other piece to my puzzle is I've got a PA that works with me. And because of my employment agreement, my PA is actually employed by my employer, by the hospital. Basically, as long as she meets a minimum threshold of production, the hospital will pay for her. That's the the simple way of putting that. And then in our practice, we work by trying to let her improve my productivity to see more folks and that sort of a thing. So it'll be interesting to see how that, because obviously she can't see folks (laughs) either. So there's more questions than answers right now. But I think this is one of those times, and I hesitate to say this because it's, I, I don't in any way mean this to sound insensitive. Like, I'm very thankful. I feel for my colleagues who are in a more traditional private practice because for those guys that, you know, they're worried about how do I keep my nurse and my staff employed during this period of time? Whereas my staff in a worst case scenario could be shifted to a primary care clinic to check patients in and still be able to keep their jobs. And so it's a tough time. I think for all of us, in some ways it gets blunted, at least in the short term for me, by my employed position. But certainly the hospital system as a whole will feel some strain at some point. It'll just be interesting to see how this all plays out. Yeah, so I agree. As an academician, I'm insulated from that. I don't have to apply for a care grant. I don't have to make the decisions about who I let go. And it's nice to have that insulation and not have to make those really tough decisions. For sure. Yeah, I feel for those guys and gals out there, they're having to do that because that sounds horrible. And again, yeah. going back to the uncertainty, you just don't know what sort of time frame we're looking at and how permanent of a decision that is. So think about it. I know it's not what we're talking about, but a dentist off. Like if you're a dentist who yeah. does tooth cleanings and caps and fillings and stuff, I, I don't know how those guys survive this except through the grants like you're talking about. So Right, exactly. Yeah, well, it's like, uh, it's like restaurants, right? So the big chains, yeah. they're going to have a rough time, but they're going to come back because they're big chains. Right. But the small pop, mom and pop, restaurants, they aren't likely to survive this if it goes on long enough, right? So it's the same kind of deal. There's just not as much infrastructure. There's not as much in the rainy day fund to cover these types of scenarios. Or places to pull it from, you know, like we, we know that in general, we as surgeons kind of support the hospital system. Typically the hospital operates at a loss. We kind of make up the gap. And then here it is the other, other way around. It'll be interesting to see like you know, I don't know how these like global periods of hospitalization are going to work. You know, if you have somebody come in, get intubated for three weeks on a ventilator, finally get extubated, the compensation for that can't make up for the lost income to the hospital during that time. And without us doing these outpatient elective surgeries that are really the money makers for the system, it's just interesting. But at least there is that. Whereas if I'm a private practice guy, there's no hospital system kind of buoying my decreased production. So I don't know. It's, it's just... It's fascinating. It's going to be interesting to see. And that's kind of what I meant about like, what's the end point? Like, at what point do you say we've flattened this curve enough that we can withstand the influx of patients and therefore we have to start taking care of these things that were maybe not urgent, emergent, but can't drag on for six months. That, that's the problem I'm having. And I, in my practice, I texted Todd Wine the other day and said, hey, 
what are you doing with like ear tubes, kids that are like recurring acutotized media? It's not an emergency, certainly, but like, I don't want that kid going in for Rosefin shots in their pediatrician's office every, every two weeks. So at some point, if this drags on for three months, I think I have to make an argument to do some of these kids ear tubes, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's just, it's, you know, the definition of urgent changes depending on the timeline and we just don't know it. Yes, absolutely. How's homeschooling going? Oh, you know, as miserable as you might expect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm there with you. It's just funny how much harder it is to teach your own kids than it is someone else's kids. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, they just well, don't we, listen to you. About they don't listen to you. <laughs> I know. Stuff. And they're more willing to whine to you than they would be to their teachers or to a different adult. Yes. So what I'm getting at is just send your kids here. I'll send mine up to you. Perfect. Teach we'll them just everything about. Kids. <laughs> yeah. I know we should be fine. Yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> I love it. Anything else that you're doing to stay socially connected while you're socially distancing? More of this. I'm sort of like an 80-year-old trapped in the 34-year-old's body when it comes to technology and stuff, but this has forced me. I, I learned what Zoom is, the Jitsi, and trying to be in touch with my family more and that sort of thing. But that's all we can do. It's right. nuts. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. Are they talking about moving your residents around at all for any other stuff? Yeah. So GME is now has a database, actually, which I just filled out this morning, asking what their skills are for redeployment. We've been having twice a week Zoom meetings with the residents for an hour to talk about things that are happening and also have some social time because they all miss each other. And so during those meetings, we've been talking about, look, if you have a reason why you cannot be reassigned somewhere else, I need to know that. I don't need to know why. I just need to know that. And then also, are you willing to be redeployed somewhere if you're called to do that? Like, I know that half of you are rotating every other day on your service because you're not all needed and we're trying to preserve PPE and keep you out of harm's way. If it comes to that and you're needed, are you willing to do that? You know, are you willing to go to the ED and intubate people? Are you willing to triage people in the tent outside the hospital? Willing to manage ICU or floor patients? So yeah, it's tricky. And, you know, they're doing that through the GME, but then they're doing that separately through the faculty as well. So there's a separate survey that's going out to all the faculty where you answer, am I at high risk because of age or comorbidities? Would I be willing to be redeployed? What are my skills? You know, they have every possible contingency, which is really kind of humorous, like... (laughs) Are you able to provide obstetric care? <laughs> no, I cannot do that. <laughs> well, I know someone who could. <laughs> right. Yes. When was the last time you took care of a ICU critically ill patient? Technically, residency? Yes, I mean, right. I, right. Yeah, exactly. It depends you on know, what you mean. It depends on what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, I round on them, but right. am I managing their vent and their drips? No, I'm not. Exactly. Oh, man. Well, best of luck to you. I mean, like, that's just crazy. Like it's it's a whole nother layer for you managing the residents. It seems I got that survey today too, by the way. Like, hey, what what are you gonna help us with? So right. I don't know. It'll just be interesting. I don't think yeah. anybody anticipated. I mean, if you look at history, it's been since nineteen seventeen that you had a real blue pandemic, but you knew like something was gonna happen, but it still surprises me. Yeah. Well, and the SARS outbreak, so the virus mutated and so it became much less virulent and it wasn't as contagious, and so it just petered out. We got lucky. Right? We did get very lucky. SARS would have been worse, you know. Right, because I mean? it was has a higher morbidity. 
you were younger than I was when SARS came through and it was a while ago, but I don't remember really it flagging on my radar. And I was in medical school when it came through. I just don't remember being that worried about it at all. But see, I think, I think that's true of Corona up until recently. And that's true of that. And what that tells me is maybe the best thing that comes out of this is that we as a healthcare system recognize this can happen really quickly. And maybe we're a little more prepared for the next one that is like a SARS or an Ebola with a high mortality or morbidity or something like that. Like really here, the main issue is just we don't have the capacity for it. But I mean, if this was a more virulent thing, um, it could be even uglier. So maybe this is just like the shock to the system that gets us on track and we can be a little more prepared the next time. Nice talking to you. Great to talk to you. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. 